Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... You don't want to happen to you, to happen to your family, to happen elsewhere. That's why it's really important that there are more scholars from developing countries in the profession. The incredible life and work of Leonard Wanchikong. Out of any economist that I've ever met, Leonard Wanchikong has easily had the most astonishing, the most unusual, certainly the most harrowing personal journey that led him into economics. His backstory involves his leading multiple uprisings against a repressive government, a half decade in hiding when he could only come out at night. At one point, there was a forbidden romance. There was imprisonment. There was torture. And there was an escape from prison. And all these personal experiences of his early life also imprinted themselves deeply on his work and his economic research that came later in life. Leonard is now an economist at Princeton, and he's the founder and president of the African School of Economics, a university that he founded in 2014. The African School of Economics is based in his native country of Benin. And for those unfamiliar, Benin is a small West African country along the Gulf of Guinea that shares borders with Nigeria, Togo, Burkina Faso, and Niger. And it's also where Leonard was born and where his story begins. Leonard and I met recently at a Princeton University recording studio, and we spoke for quite some time about his earliest years. And I'm just going to summarize them now to save a bit of time so that we can pick up the interview already underway. Leonard was born to a family of subsistence farmers in Benin, and early in his life, in the 1960s, he saw his father harassed by the government for failing to pay a very punitive tax. And Leonard first became a student activist, a protester, when he was in seventh grade. And by the 1970s, Benin had come under the control of a dictator named Mathieu Kerekou, who ran a Soviet-style one-party state and who led the economy in a Marxist-Leninist direction. So communism, the government taking over key economic sectors, and so on. And Leonard, who by then was in his late teens and early 20s, was definitely a left-wing student protester, but he was less concerned at the time with economics than with his government's political oppression. And the first time Leonard was arrested for his activism was in 1976, and he was jailed for just a couple of weeks that time. And he was also a member of an underground illegal opposition party that was itself communist. But as you're going to hear, he became disillusioned with his own party over time, both because the party had its own stifling internal repression of ideas and also because a visit to a communist youth congress in Albania especially made him realize that communism was not for him. And he would later resign from that party. But I'm also getting a little bit ahead of myself because that all came later in the 1980s. We pick up the story in 1979, when Leonard was still a leader with this opposition party. Here we go. So in 1979, I went underground because we organized a student uprising. Mm -hmm. And we were expelled from the university. And our names were everywhere, wanted that dead or alive. Yeah. So I went underground. And then from 79 to 84, I was completely underground. You know, I only get out at night. But then when I was underground, that's when I visited the communist Albania. And I decided to start distancing myself. And then in 1984, yeah. that was when in Benin... You were arrested and thrown in prison exactly. for a long stretch of time, correct? Exactly. 85. 85. Yeah. 85. Okay. Ju uh, July 18, 1985. Okay. So you, you effectively get caught. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But it, it was after we organized another major uprising. Okay. Know, May 6, 1985. We were allowing on campus again because there was an amnesty. And I organized during that time another major uprising. And this time... Back to early on, we were white well, names everywhere, the police everywhere, the secret police. So in the end, after a few months in hiding, for a second time, mm -hmm. after a short stint of freedom, that time I was arrested on July 18, 1985. Wow. Yeah. yeah it's, quite, it's quite a journey and quite a long journey, actually, from the first time you were arrested in 1976. Yes. You know, to... Then going underground starting in 1979. Yes. Resurfacing around 
1984, 1985, right around then. Exactly. <laughs> There's an amnesty, so you're allowed back onto the university campus. Yeah. Where you lead another student uprising. Exactly. And then in 1985, you get thrown in prison. Yes, I was arrested. It was an extremely spectacular arrest because, I mean, I, the police surrounded the place I was hiding for about five hours, came to pick me up from where I was. It was about 120 soldiers. Wow. You know, and it was a big deal. And I was a big deal. You know, were, were you afraid for your life? I knew. I mean, everybody knew that I would not have, uh, I wouldn't come back alive because it was really, really, really bad, you know, those days. And the first few weeks, really In bad. prison, you In mean? In prison, yeah. What happened? <laughs> I was brutally tortured for, really? for weeks. The one specific day where we were asked to stand up for three days, three nights. And after the third day, you know, you know, we were beaten up for four to five hours. And I still have scared of this. You know. I mean, I remember that I was sent for treatment in the hospital. And I remember vividly that all the medical doctors, the nurses, they thought that I wasn't involved in a major accident, you know, because... Because where, you were so bruised. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. bruised everywhere. But I think uh, what was uh, really interesting is how we never really panicked, you know, because we knew that if we find a way to communicate with the torturers, maybe some of them, maybe one of them could act in a more humane way and we could have been saved. And that's exactly what's happened. You know, like, for instance, during the interrogation, I will tell them, well, you know, um, listen, the lists of our colleagues that you want us to give out for them to be arrested, we know some of them, but there are others we don't know. But it is completely irrational for us to give out those names because we are going to kill us no matter what. You know, we give it, we give the name, you kill us. We don't give it, you kill us. So why the point of giving it? But also, do you want people that we accepted to lead people who accepted our leadership to be brought in these conditions. And we try to communicate our real feeling and we try to be very deliberately rational. And I realized that one of them was actually touched by what we were saying. And we can sense that there was some kind of internal conflict between them. So one wants to go to the extreme, the other one tried to delay one of your interrogators exactly. wanted to go a little softer because he exactly. felt badly about what he was doing. Exactly. Fast forward. <laughs> Fast forward last year, for the first time, I had a Zoom call with him, with the guy who... Who tortured you. Who was on the other side. Yeah. Who didn't want to be yeah. enforcing. And, and we had a great conversation. And he told me explicitly that he knew we were different. I was particularly different because I was so deeply, I had such a deep conviction that I could actually, under any circumstance, explain what I want to, you know, what I, what I stand for. And also that I was taking them as human beings as well and try to explain to them what we were thinking, what we were doing. And that he thought we have potential to lead the country at some point in the future that they could actually work under us one day, perhaps, because of the kind of respect that they had for us. So, so one, of the, one of my proudest moments is actually to have accomplished that. Because I was thinking those, those days that it's not about revolution and death, it's revolution and life. There is no need for me to choose between death and revolution. If possible, yeah. it's revolution and survive. And it's not by compromising your conviction, by compromising uh, your beliefs, but by explaining, by even by giving the impression to the guy, to the torturer, that if he were in your shoes, he would have done the same thing. So, so, so I think, um, you know, it was great uh, in retrospect to have managed to remain who we were coming in and managed to survive, you know, and I think... It's something that I am extremely proud of because I could have just been a statistics, you know, one of those students that were killed by the dictatorships. 
And I think the fact that I could also take some distance again from the internal ideology of the political party I was part of, and then to have been able to say there is something in the party I was part of that I completely disagree with. And when I have the opportunity, I'm going to resign. And the letter that I sent to them, I wrote in the letter, and the letter is here. I mean, I, I, I still have it. It says, the model that I'm aspiring to is the Swedish model. And I, you know, <laughs> Swedish the model. Swedish socialist model. Exactly. You know, right. where you have capitalism, but with social protection. And, and I said in the letter that I completely disagree with the lack of debate, a lot of discussion within the organization, the hierarchical nature where you have people who decide and people who execute and who have blind faith in the organization. Another thing that I did that was not very popular those days is that actually I decided to date a girl who was not part of the organization. That was frowned upon? Yes, because, because you know, you don't know whether she's a spy. You don't know whether, for instance, she's going to remain strong if things are very bad. But I wanted to have a foot outside, you know? So I think it's very important, because it's a very important lesson that, in fact, be able to be emotionally or personally connected to people with different convictions and or different level of convictions, political conviction like you are, is a real blessing. I have to imagine that it must have been an incredibly intellectually and emotionally stifling environment that your comrades in, in the party that you were a member of until you resigned were resistant to you dating somebody outside of it. You know, that's just such a different world. Yeah. Than the one that I think a lot of us in the so-called West like grow up in. Yeah. What you're describing is, is a much more kind of punitive and suspicious environment. Yeah. No, but I mean, but at the same time, and this is what is very important. There were a large group of individuals who I was able to convert into believing that it was my rights to go out with whomever I wanted. You can always try to persuade enough people, even in this environment, to be on your side. And that's what I did. Because in the end, she was not part of the organization, but yet she was one of the best supporters of the organization. Mm. And you know, she was providing you know, financial support and emotional support, despite the fact that she's not part of the organization. So I was able, even along those lines, to isolate the leadership. Yeah. You know? So I was, in fact, allowed to, to do what I wanted. And, and, and also, much later on, her presence helped me to really become who I became because throughout, she was always telling me, you are, you are very smart. You are mathematicians. You are a professor. So this environment is not for you. So what I'm saying, it's important to know that open-mindedness, connection with people outside your circle, it's a real, real, real blessing. You actually just described three things that you're quite proud of from that stretch from roughly 1979 until 1986. Number one, you dated a woman who was outside of the party. Yeah. Number two, you separated yourself from that party when there must have been a lot of certainly pressure oh. from your peers and your friends to go along with what was happening. So you yeah. separated yourself from the party and eventually resigned. And then third, and this is the one that's truly spectacular, which is that you managed to survive in prison in a situation where you thought that you and your friends who'd been arrested were all going to die. Absolutely. You were being tortured. Again, you stayed true to who you were, but you managed to convince one of your interrogators to go a little easier on you and yes. to let you survive, yes. even though that must have been an utterly brutal situation. Exactly. You know, I mean, the idea that you can actually say to somebody who is actually very brutal and see some humanity in that person that allows you to talk, that allows you to communicate with that person, to be able to sense that, well, he's doing this for professional reasons, not because he will have been maybe arrested himself if he did otherwise. He's afraid not to do it. Exactly. And I think having been able to detect that in him and, and use that to our advantage, I mean, and then today, you know, the fact that two years ago, I was able to talk to him. Like you and I, we are yeah. communicating now. He keeps apologizing. No, 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 no. 
knew exactly what you were what was going on what sure. going on what you were facing and how did you get in touch again after so many decades and given what must have been a really surreal among many other things yeah. encounter originally yeah so i have a friend who is from the army who is an officer in the army who is here in the u.s who knew him and he's, in the Beninese? Yeah, Beninese. Beninese you know, army? Army, okay. you know, he's now, the, he's now in the U.S. And I asked him to talk to him and to plan a meeting between the two of us so that I can actually, you know, I cannot tell him that he doesn't have to worry, you know, that I knew exactly what was going on, in a, that I'm even ready for some kind of reconciliation, you know, some kind of truth and reconciliation. Did you have that? Yes, because I knew, and also I have to be grateful that he actually contributed to us surviving by sure. not going to the extreme that he could have. She could have and pay no price, you know, and he did not, you know. And so, so, so I think it's, it's, it's really, really important to actually see humanity in somebody who was doing something awful at the time. Yeah, you know, obviously I was comparing him to others who were just ruthless, sadistic to some degree. I was comparing them to 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 those person, but at the same time, he was still involved in this. You know, you know. Um, in fact, <laughs> I wrote an article on this episode. It came out in Journal of Conflict Resolution, and the title of the article is called "The Game of Torture." The game of torture. Yes. So basically. I was able to formalize the strategic. The strategic interaction between a torturer and somebody who's being tortured? Exactly. Wow. Then you to think about a resistance strategy based on my experience. And one of the resistance strategy is try to figure out whether you are facing a sadistic torturer or a professional torturer. Try to communicate with. Oh, if profession. you're facing a sadistic torturer who just likes inflicting pain versus somebody who's just there trying to do their job. Exactly. Okay. And yeah. you have a different strategy depending on exactly which is which. Uh, yeah. And then if you communicate with the professional, maybe he can stand in the way of the sadistic. Okay. And that could buy you some time. That could. Is there a strategy if you're facing a sadistic torturer? Do you have to act as if the pain is so much worse than it actually is because that's what's you know satisfying the sadistic torturer? And then that way, yeah, no, the strategy you get for, away with it, or what's no, the no, the strategy there? I think for me, the stat, when you face a sadistic torturer, tell him that there is no point. You are ready to die. So there is nothing. Oh, okay. You know, because if he thinks that there is an opening, that he could be successful. Then he just pushed to the extreme. So that's why, you know, our communication strategy with the sadistic was like, you know, we know we have the information you are asking, but we are not going to give it no matter what. Come it's on. never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Anyway, we are smiling to him. We are talking to him. We are saying, come on, you don't do that. You don't do that. You don't do that. Right. You, don't, you don't bring your friend here. You know, if you die, you better die alone. You know, and so, but, so as a result, he's, you disarm. He feels that he cannot be successful. And then there's no point. There's no in point. continuing to interrogate. Exactly. But then if you have a professional, the professional can confront him and say, this guy has a point. So what are we doing this for? You know? Yeah. So anyway, so. So you applied a social science <laughs> lens back to your exactly. original interrogation. Exactly. But, but, but the thing about it is that it was very intuitive. You know, for me, it was intuitive. So I think to summarize, having a strong conviction, but thinking clearly, Thinking strategically, they are not incompatible. I want to point out one other time that you were quite strategic in your thinking, which is when you escaped from prison. Yeah. You, according to a biography I was reading, you essentially told the guy who was overseeing the prison that you had to go see a doctor yeah. about your arthritis, which yeah. you had because you'd been tortured. Yes. And that part was legit. Yeah. And the guy who oversaw the prison trusted you essentially to come back after seeing the doctor because you had done this before. Yes. And instead, you had planned this escape route to Nigeria. Exactly. And by the way, for people who don't know this, uh, Benin is bordered by Nigeria on the east. Yes. And so you planned this route where you could leave the prison. I think you had a driver or a motorcycle or something waiting yeah, for motorcycle. you. Yeah, motorcycle. Motorcycle. Mm -hmm. 
And then you had a tough moment when you got to the border because the police officer guarding the border, the exit to Nigeria was like an old friend of yours, right? Somebody you knew. Yeah, not friend, but he, when I came for medical visit for the first time, he was the one guarding me. So he knew me very well, you know, and... And if he saw you on a motorcycle about to cross into Nigeria, he'd be like, what is going on here? Exactly. And I was so lucky that when I saw him, I put a lot of money in his hand, like any other kind of motorcycle kind of smugglers who often smugglers who want to bribe the border patrol people. And I don't know what happened. Is it like he was still asking who is this person? Or he was knew that given what I did, giving him all the money that I had, I could not have been who he thought I was, whatever it is. But it was like five minutes walk from where I saw him to the border. And that's the longest five minutes of, of my your life. life. The longest yeah. five minutes of your life, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because anytime I thought that he would have realized who I was, and when I got to the, other, to the outside, the other side of the border, I was extremely happy. I wow. Knew, I knew that that's it. Yeah, things are never going to be the same again. Yeah, what a story. Yeah. yeah. So you, you got into Nigeria. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to zoom through uh, your academic early years yeah, so yeah. that we can get to your work. But from Nigeria, you eventually made it to Canada, yeah. where you started studying to become an economist. Yes. First question, why economics? Two things. So first, in hiding first and in prison, a friend of mine gave me a copy of the three books of Kalmar, that's capital. And I have nothing to do, so I read it 20 times and summarized <laughs> it five times, you know? <laughs> so I became very interested in economics because of, and I also thought that you know, you can actually formalize economic uh, conditions. And and you were good at math. I was very good at math, very good at math. The only thing I wanted to become later on was to become a math professor. You know, like even today, if you ask my colleagues in Benin, Leonard is professor of, there's 99% of people will say, say math, you know. <laughs> I mean, obviously now they know that I'm an economics professor, but if you wanted to be honest, because that was the only thing. I, I mean, and my grade in math was, of the roof, and I was very good. I was very passionate about math. But then the connection with Marx, and particularly book one and book three, was I find it very fascinating. So when I came to Canada, I enrolled in math, obviously. And then I went to the Department of Economics to take a course in what else? Marxian economics, mm-hmm. you know? And then the DGS, the Director of Graduate Studies, you know, saw me and said, what are you doing here? Who saw you? A, the Director of Graduate Studies. Okay. So he asked me to enroll in economics, undergrad, as opposed to math economics. And okay. I said, no, 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 I'm not doing it. And he sensed something. And he said, well, I have a deal for you. I'm going to put you on a fast track, econ undergrad program. You are going to take eight courses. If you pass those courses with B+, then you can enroll for a master's in economics. So I ha- I've been having spent nine years, you know, out of school. Here is a deal where I could right, actually- Right, you're like 30 by this point. Yeah, I was well, 32. You haven't graduated, 32, you don't have an undergraduate I have degree no, yet. I have no right. degree. So somebody just offered you to, <laughs> to get a master's degree. And I was, are you serious? You, you took serious? it, yeah. I took it. And, you know, all the- determination, the drive that accumulated over the years came back. I worked like crazy, you know, when the office hours, I will come two hours before, sit, you know, whatever. You know, I was so determined. First semester, I took five courses. I have four A's, one B. And I went to see him. He said, no need to take the other three. You are starting the master's program the following semester. Wow. So as a result, I was able basically you didn't even get an undergraduate degree. I have you no went, you have no undergraduate, undergraduate degree. degree. You went so straight you, to master's. You look at my CV, <laughs> you don't miss anything. I haven't forgotten to mention my undergraduate degree, but it was none. It just doesn't <laughs> exist. It didn't exist. <laughs> so I did my master's. But then I realized also that economics is actually very mathematical, very kind of formal, sure. you know. So it was such a perfect match for me. Given my social ambition, given my interest in making the, the world a better place, my personal motivation, and math skills. So as a result, 
my master's degree went very well. And then I was able to apply to get into PhD. And uh, so, yeah. PhD at Northwestern. And then after that, you taught for a while at Yale. Yes. You then taught at NYU. Yeah. Now you're at Princeton. Exactly. Throughout all that time, you've been doing a lot of research. And the first thing I want to note about your research is yeah. that quite a lot of it is based in Benin. It, yes. it looks at you know, the historical legacy, for example, of the slave trade yeah. and what it did to Benin. Human capital in particular seems to be a huge, yeah. you know, point of emphasis for you yeah. in all of your research. So why don't we start talking about some of the research itself? Exactly. That's okay. Here's a paper. It's titled Education and Human Capital Externalities, Evidence from Colonial Benin. And yeah. I don't want to mention it's co-authored by Marco Klasnia and Natalia Novta. Yes. And this is fascinating because essentially what you looked at was the legacy of schools that were opened in Benin after the country was colonized in the late 1800s by the French and when there was also a big Vatican presence yes. in the country. Yes, yes. They opened a series of schools and you essentially looked at what happened to the students, the young students, the children who attended those schools. Yeah and their descendants as well. And of course, you compared it to the children in Benin who did not get a chance to go to those schools exactly. uh, and their descendants also. And there's a number of things that you found that were quite fascinating. And I'd, I'd like to talk about that now. Yeah. So yeah. one thing you found, and this may not be super surprising, was that the children who attended those schools went on to have better, more prosperous lives yeah, yeah, in yeah. Benin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps more interesting though is the effects on the second generation exactly. and, and future descendants. So can you kind of just take us through what you found there? Absolutely. So something that highly motivated me is the value of aspiration. Of aspiration. Aspiration. So it's very hard for me to comprehend how determined, how driven my parents were in sending their kids to school. You're saying your parents, my, 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 very, they really emphasize yes, that yes, to go to yes. school, and as then, opposed to, you know, becoming a farmer. Yeah, like yeah, them. absolutely. Absolutely. They were determined for us not to be like that because for two reasons. First, there was a school, you know, a school nearby, you know, set up by, by Vatican, as I said, but also my uncle went to that school. So not only going to school was a possibility, but they saw the value of education and this exposure to a value of education was persistent because my, my uncle was part of the extended family. And so I think that the combination of those two factors makes my parents extremely uh, driven. And then I realized that they were not the only one. You know, there was a, a number of parents in the village who were extremely driven as well. Your parents had not attended school. No, 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 not at all. Okay. My parents didn't attend school. They are subsistence farmers. And because of my experience, and I, when I remember how determined they were in sending all of us to school, I started to sort of try to figure out whether this is a, an outlier, if my family was an outlier, or something more general. So I was able to look at similar schools set up in similar times around the country and just found exactly, as you said, that not only there was a massive convergence in school enrollment in the places where school existed. So people, we come from a situation where you have 95% of individuals being subsistence farmers. The next generation, it reduced drastically to, let's say, 40%, 50%. And you leave a situation where maybe 1% or 2% of the kids in the village went to school to a situation where 60% of the kids uh, went to the school in the second generation. So, and then what is interesting is that I have a new paper looking at the third generation. What is interesting is that those living near the school who did not go to school, their grandchildren did better than those whose grandfathers who went to school. So mm. it shows that in aspiration, you know, mm. like parental drive driven by two things, the existence of school and be in the same network of somebody who is educated, these can have such a powerful tool yeah. 
drive for social mobility. So there's, there's sort of the direct effect, which you would expect, but then there were all these like spillover exactly. effects as well. Exactly. And the spillover can be more powerful than the direct effect. Yeah. And what is interesting. And, 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 and it, sort of, it sort of brings to light this concept of aspiration as well. Exactly. And yeah, I, I love this paper because there's all these other things that you have to consider besides just the effects on the children who went to the school, right? And I'll, I'll give you another example of something in the paper that I thought was intriguing was that it wasn't just that those children who went to school would grow up, have children of their own, and their children would benefit as well. The nieces and nephews of those original kids who went to school also benefited. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned that your uncle had gone to this school and that maybe that had provided, you know, a template, an example of exactly. somebody who went. And so it, it it sort of points to a few potential, you know, causal mechanisms. One is the aspirational effect. Yeah. But the other is you have a better educated social network. Exactly. The other I suspect, and this is mentioned in the paper, is that if you have, you know, kin, relatives who are better off, they're going to feel at least some pressure to also provide exactly. for the members of their family, like their nieces and nephews, exactly. uh, who aren't as well off. Exactly. You know, that kind of thing. So like there's all these potential effects. Exactly positive effects of establishing a place to educate kids. Exactly. And, and I think the, the general lesson from this that could be applied to the U.S. as well is, for instance, our community was not segregated. It was not segregated by groups. It was not segregated by class. My uncle and others educated in the village. When they come, they are available. They talk to anyone. So sometimes there is this kind of African extended family culture where you Take your nephew and nieces, or even your neighbor's children, like your own. You call them your children. You know, you don't, you see what I mean? For instance, uh, my cousin sent me a text yesterday talking about my two kids. He said, How my children are doing. You know, ah, yeah. so, <laughs> and, and, and I think when your parents are basically you know, a lower class, but the upper class individual in your family, consider you as their own children, I think not only psychologically this is great, but also you can reach out to them whenever you can benefit from their experience. And then sometimes they can actually provide for you financially. And this kind of family distributive pressure that some people today consider to be a nuisance because, you know, it's, a, it's like taxing success, you know, that some pe people see it that way. It doesn't have to be, you know, because obviously my parents cover a lot of expenses, but then when they face some financial constraints, some credit constraints, then you have the uncle who come to the rescue. And the fact that my success was basically perceived as his success, that he, I was his children, you know, his child as well, this was very, very powerful. And I think... This is an element of African culture that I would, like, I would like to bring out is the fact this kind of family externalities and neighborhood externalities, that can be a powerful tool for reducing inequality, but also for social mobility across generations. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I want to turn to another paper now. This one is titled The Slave Trade and the Origins of Mistrust in Africa, and it's co-authored with Nathan Nunn. This is another fascinating paper on the long-lasting effects, in this case, the negative effects of something that happened a very long time ago and even ended you know, a century or longer ago, yeah. and yet it still potentially has effects now. And specifically here, you study the idea that when Benin was being repeatedly raided by slave traders, the population of people who grew up and lived in Benin had to develop these coping strategies exactly. for how they would survive, these self-preservation strategies for how they would not get chosen to be traded exactly. as part of the slave trade. Exactly. And that people developed these kinds of norms of, in some senses, betrayal of yep. sort of informing on their neighbors and turning in their neighbors exactly. and... It's something that you studied because you were curious to know if it would last all the way until today. And again, this is something where you studied what happened in Benin, your own native country. And so, yeah, so take us through this paper and, and what you found. Exactly. So it's uh, actually the paper covered the whole continent. 
and we look at various. Oh, right, right. But you, you were, your interest in it was sparked by yes, the fact that Benin exactly. was such a central place. Right? Benin was a central place, and I was talking uh, to my wife one day, and you know, she was like this colleague of mine in fourth grade. She's very suspicious of everyone, and then she always says, "So and so will sell you. So and so will make you disappear." That actually became how you define mistrust. A, distrust B. It means in our local language that A can sell B or A can make B disappear. So it's something that I know for, for decades and decades, but then at the moment I say, what is this? Sell, make disappear, mistrust? Then I had a conversation with my colleague who was studying the long-term impact of slave trade on African development in general. And he was interested in trying to understand the mechanism of how slave trade underdeveloped Africa. Because trust is something that's helpful for development. Exactly. Okay. And then immediately the mechanism we try to explore is one of trust. And then we looked in Benin and across the continent and we find that the correlation between the extent of involvement in slave exports for two or three centuries, you know, from 17th, 18th century to 19th century, was highly correlated with mistrust. Not only trusts of neighbors, trusts of in general, but also trust of mistrust of people you know, which is particularly the most intriguing because you can assume that if you know somebody enough, if you have lived long enough with someone, it will build trust between the two. Mm. But we realize that there is an intrinsic level of mistrust, regardless how long, regardless the amount of experience you have with that person. And, and we, we, we link this to the pervasive effect yeah. of, of slaves. And the, the mechanism the one you described, which is like to resist then, you have to not trust anyone. And this, both because you're trying to survive yourself, but you're also suspicious of others who might be employing the same strategy of mistrust. Exactly. No, you. I mean, more precisely, what used to happen is that at some point, the way the, the slave raiding became very decentralized. You get people to resist to being raided by selling guns or, you know, or arms to them or whatever other means of protection. But then to get those means of protection, you have to sell slaves yourself. So as a result, slavery has started turning people once again to the other community against the other community. So once those then you see people disappearing, not knowing where they went, the last time you saw is that he was with this guy. You know, the last time I saw him was this guy. So as a result, you assume that this is going to happen to you as well. And consequences that you feel like, well, the, the best way to resist is when A tells me, take me to this place, no, regardless. Mm, yeah. You know, approach you for anything, no, regardless. Yeah. You know? So this is, mistrust became the coping mechanism, the, the way you can protect yourself. And this is taught, transmitted generation through generation, you know, with, different means, you know. And you essentially found that the descendants of people who were from parts of Africa where there was the most intensive slave trading yeah. had higher levels of mistrust towards others than the descendants of Africans who were from parts of Africa that did not have as intensive exactly. slave trade. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I have to say there is something both deeply human and deeply tragic about these findings. It's quite human because we learn lessons implicitly or explicitly from our parents. Yes. We learn lessons from their parents. And so you can sort of understand why this could last for so long, this mistrust could last for so long, but deeply tragic because it has been so long. Exactly. Right. Or at least it feels like it's been a while. But if you think about how long the slave trade lasted, maybe it really hasn't been that long. I don't know. What, what do you think about this? No, I mean, I think it had been it had been long because I mean, obviously, it had been more than one hundred fifty years. Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, it just shows that the way we cope about the legacy of slave trade, particularly on the, on the continent, is to think creatively about mechanisms 
to build trust among individuals, either by trying to teach people to say, well, this guy you have been with for 40 years haven't done anything to you, so why now? And tell people that, well, do you know that this is the historical episode that explains what, how we are behaving? So if we use this finding as a way to educate ordinary individuals about these things, so that will be really important. And then also set up institutions by saying, by every organization, for instance, need to have somebody, a wise person, who will try to counter this tendency of mistrust and saying, okay, come on, sit, what's happening? No, 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 that's not what he meant. No, 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 come on, man, what's happening? You know, a wise person with the role of helping build bond and trust among individuals, something that might not be absolutely necessary in some contexts will be necessary in African context, especially in places that have been heavily exposed to slave trade. So mm. the, obviously slave trade explain what's happening today, you know, but it's not the whole story. We, are, we, we, we find 15 to 25% of variation in trust is explained by having been exposed to, to slave trade. 25%, that's a lot. Yeah. But there is still 75% that's not explained. So it shows that something can be done and some community have done something to make it less pervasive. I mean, there are you know, more educated people, people who travel more. In some professions, people are more trusting than other professions. So it has to be clear that this is not destiny. Something can be done. And for instance, when you are building institutions in Africa, you have to focus on a lot of institutions that get people to interact, to figure each other out. You know, That's why in some rural communities, town hall meeting is it's part of a local political culture everywhere. You know, town hall meeting, any issue, town hall meeting. Town hall meeting because you face each other, you see that you, know, you cannot imagine, for instance, things you cannot imagine too much. So the point, I wanted to insist on the fact that this paper is what it is, but at the same time, something can be done. And it will be, be transparent about what is the causes of this mistrust for people to know. And then to think of you know, education, political institution, design that will contribute to build trust. And this could be one of the most kind of uh, effective ways to promote development. On the right. Continent. So as tragic as the finding is, it is not a cause or an excuse for hopelessness. Exactly. Absolutely. You, you said it very well. Yeah, exactly. There's another paper that's fascinating in part because it was inspired by your observations of what happened to your mother's village in Benin. Yeah. So the, the backstory here is that you had not visited your mother's village since roughly the 1970s. Yeah. You returned in 2009 and you noticed that it had degenerated. It had become worse. It had become more stricken with poverty. Exactly. And you were curious to know what was going on. This paper is called The Curse of Good Soil, Land Fertility, Roads, and Rural Poverty in Africa. It was co-authored with uh, Piero Stanig. Yeah. And this paper is fascinating for a couple of reasons, not least of which is that it provided the basis for some work that you're now doing in the United States. Yes. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. Exactly. I, I just want to go through the findings of this paper very quickly because it's quite counterintuitive. Yes. You found that actually in parts of Africa where there's very high quality soil, very fertile soil, yeah. those parts tend to have higher poverty not lower poverty, exactly. even though the soil is better. And it seems like the, the mechanism here, the finding in your paper, is that essentially it provides almost like a rationale to not invest in things like roads, infrastructure, the development of markets, and in human capital, in education. This is fascinating. And I also think it kind of flies in the face of what a lot of people who, for example, you know, argue for the international community to, I don't know, give aid of a certain kind, better fertilizer usage, yes. that kind of thing, 
you find the opposite of what that sort of prevailing wisdom is. Exactly. I think uh, what this paper does is to show that when you look at soil fertility, don't look at soil fertility alone. You have to look at it in combination of access to markets and in combination with um, um, you know, roads. Because if the soil is fertile and you don't have access to markets, you have enough to live off the soil quality. There's no need to send your kids to school. You can ever, you well, even have tendency. They to can have, just work on the farm. You can work on the farm and will survive. You can also have a lot of children because there is no, they will survive. You know, so it's like a natural resource curse, you know, where you have country with a lot of oil being poorer because they can just live off the oil. You know, if this happened, same thing with, with soil. So the mechanism is one of lower investment in education in particular, and also less of risk taking, less innovation, because the soil is there, you know? And, and then what is interesting is having a high monetary income is not important because you can actually just leave off what you can get straight, you know, from, from this. And so it just shows that it's really important, like it happened in Europe, one of the biggest kind of accomplishment in the Roman Empire, for instance, is linking cities to places with high agricultural productivity where the wheat can be produced in those areas and sent to the city. So the yeah. development of, of roads exactly. and transport. Exactly, exactly. So unfortunately, in the context of Africa, most of the colonial roads were not connecting cities to high agricultural productivity area with connecting them to mines. It was built for political strategic reasons. Connecting to them to low productivity areas. Exactly. Yeah. So as a result, you have a paradoxical situation where the best roads in many African countries are where the soil is the worst. And the worst roads are places where the soil is the best. So actually, the story about my parents' village is in fact similar to the situation across Africa. So we should be focusing more on developing roads that improve market access than thinking about sending fertilizers in particular. Because obviously there are places that have low level of agricultural productivity. But we have enough places with high level agricultural productivity that have the worst instances of poverty because of lack of access to good roads. Infrastructure is really, really, really key uh, to African development. Yeah. You, you write something else in this paper that's interesting, which is that there is some element of circumstance, of, of bad luck, effectively. And here's what you write. In particular, the best soil is in districts with medium high level slopes, in other words, hilly terrain, yeah. and all else equal at an altitude of 200 meters, while the best infrastructure is found in flatter lands and low altitude. We also find that the districts containing rivers and those close to the 1900 colonial borders have better land quality and worse infrastructure. Exactly, exactly. Because of you know, border disputes between the British and the French, they are not going to build infrastructure close to the border. They are going to push it in the middle. You know? And because they are, not, they are interested in connecting one colony to the, to the other, like for instance, Benin to Niger or Cote d'Ivoire to Burkina Faso. That's what we want to do. So as a result, we are going to put roads in the worst places. So, I mean, like one of the things that's very, very interesting in the context of Africa is that you can have places that are basically 30 kilometers apart because they are just 20 kilometers away from each other. But from that point where another, we have to go all the way back to the city, move up before. Take a very it. roundabout way of getting there. It takes exactly. forever. Exactly. So yeah. places that who are maybe 20 kilometers apart, instead of taking 15 minutes, it can take six hours, you know, because the roads network, colonial road network, were not built to, to integrate domestic markets, you know? So you, you just have the city being the central place, and then city to east, city to west, city to north, nothing between east and west, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then, you know, the, Many, 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 many um, kind of development agencies are focusing on renovating. Even when they think about renovating roads, 
it's mostly about renovating old colonial roads. There is less effort in integrating domestic markets by creating- By carving a new path. Exactly, exactly. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm extremely happy about this because, you know, whenever something that touches your family and is highly puzzling and you are lucky enough to have the tools to understand why, Oh, this is this is fantastic, you know. So, and, and then to you, it has to also be frustrating in some sense, yes. right? Because your finding is that all of the emphasis on policy solutions is misguided or misdirected, whereas you're saying actually nobody would ever think of designing a road system the way it was in the colonial era. You have to think more creatively. You have to act almost as if those pre-existing roads never existed, and now you design the system. Exactly, exactly. I mean, obviously, it's about building roads that are perpendicular to the current system. And I think what I'm saying that by being able to turn your frustration from observing how a, the, the collapse of a bridge in my mother's village had led to the highest land productivity area being very, very poor, use it as a motivation to push for a policy, a policy change. You know, I, I think this is why it's super important that people who come from the place, people who are connected to the place, they can make those observations very easily. And when they turn this observation into research and finding that are interesting, they have a motivation, they have a drive to push it through and to have a change, you know, which is not, because I mean, like, for instance, if I was to do this research in Northern Congo, you know, I'm done. I moved to another project, you know, because I already got my publication out of this paper. So what else? You know, when you come from a place and finding from research, it's just the beginning of your drive to push for change. Yeah. You know, because... You don't want to happen to you, to happen to your family, what happened to, to happen elsewhere. Of course. You know, you, 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 so, so, so that's why it's really important that there are more scholars from developing countries in the profession. You sent me a note before we started talking about your current project. Yeah. And again, it has to do with roads yeah. and different methods of transport. But this time, you're applying these ideas to the United States yes. and how we went from the railroad system to now the highway system and the effects that that has had. Do you, do you want to just sketch out uh, yes. your current no, um, project? I, I want to understand, for instance, how road networks affect politics. My intuition is that places that are more central, they are likely to be more liberal. Either big cities, you mean? Big, yeah. But then it would be interesting to see when... Even rural places, not big cities, that become central because of change in, in, in interstate highway system, for instance, to see how the politics, how the voting behavior in those places have changed. And the finding of this project is that using a variation in centralities of several small cities and big cities, we find that when the place becomes more central in the road network, they vote more democratic. Mm. Are these typically places that have a big population increase because people migrated to those cities, maybe from other cities or other exactly. states? Exactly. So, for instance, many of those more central places have increased in black migration from the south, and that's turned these places into democratic. There are also there are also a lot of interesting examples, for instance, uh, that we are pursuing. If you take, for instance, a state like Wyoming, um, you will find that it's a red state, but then have some blue spots. And of interest, uh, some location, for instance, that became an increased tourist destination. And those places, for instance, have more migration out of California, migration out of Chicago, became more diverse as a result, and became more democratic. You know, So exposure to others through tourism or through the centrality of the city it's something that can have profound political consequences. You know, so my next big project will be something that I will call geographical political economy. You know, how changing 
in networks, world network in particular, or changing the extent of isolation of various places can 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 change the politics of the place. Oh, very you interesting. Know, anyway. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I want to talk now about the African School of Economics. Yeah. You were the founder and you're the president of the African School of Economics. It's based in Benin. And as I understand it, you have a number of partner institutions and Princeton, where you're a professor, is one of them. And I think there's many others. The initial goal behind the African School of Economics was to effectively train up a lot more Leonard Wanchikons. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that basically the yeah. idea here? <laughs> Thank you. So, I, I, okay, let me just say, I just see very high value of having more Africans become an economist and be like me, you know, very curious about where they come from, uh, be turning their personal experience into research and policy recommendations. And, you know, in grad school, I realized that there are not many, many people like me. And I thought that I need to do something about it. So first, I started kind of identifying very promising students across Africa and bring them to study uh, in the U.S. So I brought people at Yale, at Harvard, at New York University. This moved to a research center. You know, so that I can actually start training individuals, not just to come and study in the U.S., but also be policymakers with a master's degree. And it was very successful that I moved to uh, something much bigger, which is, um, you know, the African School of Economics. And it's been, I mean, really spectacular in terms of uh, the accomplishment. You know, I'm sorry for the lack of modesty, but, you know, uh, the school was set up in 14, in 2014. Uh, after five, six years, we had placed 34 students in PhD program in the U.S. Because you train undergrad and master's No, just master's. Economics, just master's. Just master. We started, okay. we started with master's first. Okay. And then we moved to undergrads and then a PhD. Okay. But now you do all of them. We, I do everything. Okay. I do everything. And it's not just in Benin, but it's also in Cote d'Ivoire, in Nigeria. And we are turning African Slovenia into an university system. You know, like the University of California, you know, we are going to have a central control, if you will, but then a campus in maybe 20, 20 African countries. In 20 African countries, we are going to have an undergraduate program, and then we are going to have masters in a selective number of places. What is interesting is that we even now have a joint degree program in New York at Harlem. We have a master's in Harlem, you know. So we've in this master's program is primarily for African students to no. come here to New York, or is it for it's for African diaspora in general from Dominican Republic, from Colombia? Yeah. We have African Americans in the program, quite a, quite a number, and then we have Africans as well, and then we have non-Africans. We have students from Pakistan, from from Hong Kong, and and also from India. You know, so it's a elite pre-doctoral master's program to get minorities you know, worldwide, particularly black, to join the economics profession. And the next step is to set up a similar joint degree program in Brazil, in Bahia. It's quickly expanding. And you mentioned partnerships. Yes, Princeton is our main partner, but then we have 20 other partners around the world, like yeah. uh, in France, I mean, in Canada, and in Africa, particularly South Africa, but also in the U.S. You know, I, I think about your career and how, for example, the paper on mistrust in the slave trade was partly inspired by a conversation that your wife had with her Beninese friend. Yeah, yeah. And also that your paper on soil was partly inspired by your observation of your mother's village as well. Yeah. And it sort of goes to the idea that if you're going to be studying something like, for instance, development in Africa, it helps to have some African scholars, yes. you know, like this, this just sort of <laughs> makes sense. But, but I was, I was reading a profile of you that was written in the IMF a few years back. And this is kind of an astonishing statistic. I thought as of the middle of last decade, okay, I'm just going to read from the profile. It's citing another, another scholar named Reeve Chawa, a Zambian scholar. And she had noted that Oxford University's Journal of African Economies, quote, a prestigious and influential publication on African economic development issues, has only one Africa-based scholar on its 27-member editorial board. That's the end of the quote. I, I don't mean to pick on just that one journal, 
Okay, but the idea that all of these journals trying to study Africa and African development don't have African scholars is a little bit ludicrous. And I'm assuming that one of the motivations behind founding the African School of Economics is to try to rectify that. Yes, exactly. And I think throughout you can see that even since I was very young, for me, it's never enough to denounce, it's never enough to... Uh, to describe what yeah, you want to do something, you want to do something about it, and it starts with you, you know. And for me, actually, the situation is worse than what is has been described. You know, if you look at the top publication on Africa, in the top journal, ninety-five percent are by non-Africans. You know, the Journal of Development Economics, for instance, which is also the other important development economics journal, I'm no African on its editorial board, even though most of the publication on Africa, you go to conferences. Many of the papers on Africa, there is not few. But then the question is that the only solution is pipeline. You know, you need to not only train the students to push them through grad school and to get them highly motivated to to study Africa, to be part of a solution. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I think um, the success we have so far have been quite encouraging. And I cannot be grateful enough to Princeton University and other partners that has really helped me along the way. I have what I hope doesn't sound like a harsh or disrespectful question, but why did it take so long for something like this to exist? Yeah, I think, let me put it this way, in the 70s and 80s, somebody told me that in the 70s and 80s, there were more Africans admitted to PhD program than there were more recently. I think the profession has not taken African scholars very, very seriously and has not really understood the pressing needs, not only to have Africans who will, who will you know, sort of be supporting research being done elsewhere, or African who can be leaders, who can be the front runners in developing scholarships. You know, if you see many of the initiatives today to promote, um, you know, facilities and research, there is not enough attention to the fundamentals, you know, like it's not about just teaching people how to do some applied research here and there. You have to encourage people to do math, to do stats, to do history, to do philosophy at the highest level. And then when they are highly trained and got into grad school, they can basically pick the path that they want to pick, you know? So my ambition and my drive is to say it's possible, it's high need to have on the African continent, this, at least in some areas, the same level of high quality research that you have at Harvard, MIT and here. You know, at least in areas where the resources are on the continent. You see what I mean? So the kind of observation that I had, it's very hard to make that observation when you've never been there, you know? So it's such a huge, 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 huge opportunity when you have people from the continent or people on the continent being the catalyst you know, for, for scholarships. And, and this come from just admitting more and more, you know, people from Africa in PhD program or develop joint degree program, joint PhD program so that some student who start their PhD on Af- in Africa can come to the US to finish their PhD two, three years and be at the same level as most students here and go back and teach, you know. So this is what I have been advocating for a while. And I think some progress are being made, but too slow. Last question. Out there listening might be a young 17 or 18-year-old African economist uh, for whom you might be a hero, role model. And certainly they're going to hear about your, your personal history and think, God, that's impressive. But you're now also on the other side of three decades plus in the profession itself. So in terms of what that young student might be, you know, might become as an economist, what advice do you have for them, you know, in terms of what 
to pursue, what to study, how, how to go about their economics career? Yeah, I think be really ambitious. You know, if you can, uh, try to push yourself to the frontier. Don't think just in terms of trying to get a job and make a living. Obviously, if that's what you want to do, then you don't need to do a PhD. So if you do a PhD, be at the frontier. That's one. And second, use your experience. Use your African insight as a resource for your research. I'm not saying work only on Africa. You know, obviously, be very open. Sorry, European history, American history. But the fact that you are grounded into the past and present and the experience of being an African, it's something that can only help, you know. And then the third thing, reach out to me. Reach out to people like me because I will be, you know, either personally or the network of campuses that I'm setting up, reach out to people there because the worst thing to do is to be isolated and not to use the connections that you, you can possibly have to be able to learn fast and to use the opportunity that, that, that exists. So three things. So ambitious, frontier. Second is ground your work in who you are, where you come from, your identity. And the third is reach out to people. You know, don't stay on your corner. If we miss the first email, we are going to catch the second one. You know, so submit yeah. an application to the African School of Economics. <laughs> That's one. But also, if you want discussions, ideas, career advice, very generally, me and people like me are there. You can reach out to us directly. Don't be, don't be shy of calling us and reach out to us. Yeah. Leonard, why don't you call? Thank you so much for being on The New Bazaar. This was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It was so fun. And that's all the time we have for today's show. We are going to post links to the work of Leonard Wanchikol in the show notes for this episode. And I also want to give a shout out to a profile of Leonard that was written in the IMF's Finance and Development publication, which is where I first came across his story. That piece was written by Ismaila Diang. And I also enjoyed a brief profile of Leonard in The Economist magazine from a couple of years ago. And so we are going to link to both of those profiles in the show notes as well. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. Marketers and business owners, you've been pining after a certain someone. Your job's on the line. You're desperate for them to like you back. Here's a word of advice from me. Talking is hot. Just you and them, finally alone, like us two right now. Maybe under the duvet, headphones on, one-on-one. Podcast advertising is proven to be one of the best ways to catch their attention. So surprise them while they're tuned in, while the moment's right. Say a line or two that really gets them going. Next time, if you want to win over your special someone and build some brand love, experiment with something new, just focus on your voice. Advertise on more than 100,000 podcast shows with Acast. Head to go.acast.com slash closer to get started.